You're a food person, um, and you're a fa- you've been a fan um, of farmers markets even before you started working with farmers markets. And yeah, I've always loved a farmers market. I mean, although growing up, I didn't even know what farmers markets were. I don't know. There were just farms everywhere. There were roadside stands. With Bowl and Spoon, a podcast where we have stimulating conversations with interesting people about a fascinating topic food. Eating it, loving it, appreciating it, and examining how people's relationship to food has changed over time. Your personal food evolution. Today, we'll listen to my interview with Christina Howell, Executive Director at the Bloomfield Development Corporation. Christina tells me about growing up in rural West Virginia and how her love of local food and farmers markets developed, amongst other things. Enjoy! Hi, Christina! Hi, Shelly! <laughs> Welcome to With Bowl and Spoon. My guest today is Christina Howell from the Bloomfield Development Corporation. Bloomfield Development Corporation, yay! Um, and lots of other great things around the city of Pittsburgh. I think it's one of those things, you know, you live in the city of Pittsburgh and you just get involved in stuff and you are one of those people that gets involved in stuff. Um, yeah. so how's the pandemic going for you? Oh, <laughs> that's a loaded question. Uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's nice to be home more because I have the luxury and the privilege of being home and being able to work from home full time. Um, but it's also, I mean, you know, every day is kind of a, a new struggle and I'm very much a extra, an extrovert and mm-hmm. I really miss people. Um, so yeah, but I mean, I can't complain because there are so many others out of work um, or who have or have had COVID, and uh, my family has been spared from all of that. So pretty yeah, great. that's good. Congratulations. Well, I guess if if it weren't for the pandemic, it might have been more time before we actually met each other. Um, I had heard about you for years, um, and apparently you had heard about me too. Yeah, and we met briefly at something, I mean, just enough to shake hands and move on, you know. Yeah. I don't remember where. But when the COVID happened, um, you were working desperately to get the farmer's market in the Bloomfield Saturday market back opened. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that's when we connected. And that's when we connected. I know. And thank goodness we did. (laughs) I I you were in that time my hero for well you're still my hero but in that time I was really I admired the way that um, you know you were very thorough about everything and you did some lots of research on that and you were a model your 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 processes became a model for other markets throughout the region here really so do you want to talk about that a little bit sure yeah I mean Again, we there's a lot of luck here and, and privilege in that um, at the time we were the only winter market going. So we go year round, um, December through March, we do switch to the first and third Saturday um, so that staff has a break and vendors have a break. Um, but we had, we had been doing a market. In fact, we had one scheduled for whatever day that was um, right after the, the closure was announced. So I think it was announced Thursday or Friday. We were supposed to have a market. Friday the 13th mm-hmm. and then Saturday the 14th. Yeah, I think we were supposed to have one then or the following week. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we did decide, we went back and forth um, because we knew 
Um, we work closely as much as we can with Farmers Market Coalition, and they were able to quickly share photos with us of a market in New Orleans that had um, just amazingly adapted in one week's time. Uh, but we decided they'd had more time. You know, they'd they'd been dealing with it a little bit longer than the Pittsburgh area had. So we decided to close. Um, and for that week, and we thought we'd open back up in a couple of weeks, but it turned out, you know, there's just so much and things were evolving so quickly. Um, now, one thing, when you say you did this and your processes, I mean, I have to say that, you know, I used to be the market manager, but I am not anymore. And I am really out of most things. Um, and so, uh, the team is Abby Gilday and Julia Lee. Um, Abby is the market manager. Julia is the market assistant. Wasn't and... Julia's first day, the first day of market? Yes. yes. I remember that. I was, I volunteered that day. You did. That was crazy. And what a day that was. But yeah, you have a great team for sure. Yeah. They're incredible. And, um, and Abby was the one, you know, we, we sat down over zoom and just started making a list. You know, we pulled up a Google sheet and we just started making a list. Like what questions did we have to answer? What did we need? Um, and then we just started attacking and she started, she did all the research. I did very little. Um, I have the network from doing this for years. So um, I helped bring that in and she really did the research and we even got to the point where at first I was the one on webinars teaching other markets how to do this and then it transitioned naturally to her at a point and she's still sometimes taking those calls and helping people. Well before all of our my listeners think that I should be interviewing Abby instead of you, Abby is great, love Abby, but you're really um being modest about this because you've worked for years to support farmers markets. And in this time where most people would have freaked out, you stepped up. So I'm just, I'm just going to put that out there. You're really like um, un under uh, crediting yourself for all that you did during this time. I think the one, I mean, thinking about my attitude then not opening the farmer's market was just not on the table. That was just not something I ever thought was an option. Um, and maybe that made a difference. I don't know. But it really, the way that farmers markets were treated in the beginning speaks to the way that they're seen as an event and not an essential part of our food system. Um, and I think we're lucky to have Just Harvest in this city because the service that they offer that we participate in, which is the matching SNAP benefits um, yeah. at $2.00 free for every $5 they spend, we were able, I think, more easily to make the argument that farmers markets are essential, are an essential service um, to the city and, and help other people figure out how to make that argument to their uh, city officials. Yeah, that's, it's definitely a really good point. When the city did the farmers market study, that was one of the, the big things that we had to overcome was the oh, it's an event. It's just a luxury kind of thing. No, it's, it's food and it's food access. And for a lot of people, and for, you know, a long time when the markets first started, that was where people got their food. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, yeah, essential, definitely. Yeah. And, you know, you know, and I, the other thing about being an essential market is it's so amazing to me how easily people overlook the people who their livelihoods depend on that market. Um, you know, some of our smaller farmers and smaller vendors, this is the only place they sell, you know, or they might sell at one or two other markets, but they don't have a retail store. They don't have an online shop. Maybe their business is new and they're, they're just trying to figure it out um, because we really try to be a place where people can start a business. And we try yeah. to support them with that. So that was really shocking to me how little people thought about the local food system. How many weeks was it you before you were back up and running? So we actually opened on our typical opening day um, for the, we call it the summer market, but May 9th is not summer, um, I guess, warm weather market. 
even though that first day it was gale force winds snowing and what 23 degrees and tense it was May? that was may that was the <laughs> first saturday in may it was um, literally snowing yes i remember that i it was terrible it was we glad to have masks on because it was cold yeah actually the masks really helped with the nose coldness um i've been out there in markets before and now i think i may never go back to not wearing a mask at the window because <laughs> it's it does really keep your nose warm um you know the other interesting thing before we move on it during that time was that um so many local governments immediately said well we'll do uh drive-through markets or we'll do a different model um and it was we're big on accessibility, even though our market yeah. is definitely not the most accessible. There are things we wish we could do better. Um, we have some site constraints we have to work with. But one of the things as an organization we focus on is um, accessibility and trying to make sure everything we do is accessible to everyone. And it there was just a huge disconnect between um, how, what people understood about those with uh, disabilities or using SNAP benefits, um, because there was talk in many cities and small towns across this state and other states that I spoke with who um, the cities and towns would only say that they could do online ordering. But as we all know, at the time, people who use SNAP benefits couldn't order online. Um, luckily, there was a pilot going on and it was extended into Pennsylvania and now that's possible at some places, which is awesome. Yeah, that was one of the things that was like on on my radar, at least for I know a job was to have that be an online um, like before, but the pandemic just pushed so many things forward so quickly. Mm -hmm. Awesome. You were such um, an advocate for that. And, um, <laughs> it's really gratifying. I'm sure you know, it is for everyone to see it come to fruition. Well, it's just it. It makes you go like, was that really that hard? Come on. It really isn't. It really isn't. Oh, it just took a pandemic. Okay. Yeah, that's all. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, really interesting times. Um, yeah, and I think back to how, you know, in the beginning of this, like, do, do you think now, like, I'm, I'm thinking there's so many things that I could have done better that would have been more um, effective effective or efficient or whatever. I mean, we, we got through certain things, but like thinking like, ah, oh, I really, you know, missed some opportunities in the beginning of this pandemic, but like our brains weren't functioning properly. And I forget about that all the time. And I think, oh, don't be so hard on myself because we just weren't functioning properly. Yeah. I mean, biology is a real thing and our, you know, fight, flight or freeze reaction is very much a thing that we all have to deal with. Um, you know, our lizard brain takes over. Um, you know, we, we're really lucky that uh, we already had a grant from Project for Public Spaces to work with them on a project. And we were, they were awesome at switching gears to support us. Um, it's, it was Pittsburgh, Seattle, and Toronto, those three cities. Um, we're all working together on uh, kind of creating, thinking about what it means to be a market city. Um, and Project for Public Spaces, they ended up turning us into a group of friends who could vent, who could share ideas. Uh, it was really wonderful. It was like a support group. Yeah, that's people cool. People who run markets. Yeah, it was very valuable. Um, and they connected us with um, ARUP. And that is the firm that pro bono helped us figure out the site plan because holy moly, the site plan, the site plan, I still like get PTSD. My eye like twitches when I think about it. I'm sure Abby would say the same thing. You know, she was trying to do it. I was trying to do it. It was so frustrating. Um, well, because it is, it's a fenced in parking lot and you have exits on both sides and then you have uh, just a walkthrough. So you have like drive-through on both sides, right? Mm -hmm. And you have a walking walkthrough gate on another one of the, the sides. So like three sides are accessible. So you had to like rope it off, police it, make sure nobody was coming in because everything was single file and one way. Yeah. 
but we didn't know that. And then trying to figure out how large do the aisles have to be? You know, we couldn't even visualize how people were going to queue up for the vendor. Yeah. Where does the info tent go? How do we deal with the wooden tokens? Um, you know, so much. And between Just Harvest and um, AREP and Project for Public Spaces, and then just others throwing ideas at us, you know, we were able to pull it off. It was hard. But one thing I heard from colleagues, you know, luckily um, the Pittsburgh Food Policy Council started bringing together market managers weekly, which was awesome from that area. And I was hearing a lot how difficult it was to manage the flow of people when you're just in a big open space. So we were, I think, really lucky to have the constraints that we do, that fencing. Yeah. You know, that I think made it a lot easier because we were able to station volunteers at each entrance and exit to control um, whichever way we needed the traffic to go. Yeah. I, I just, I remember being so like cautious and careful about cross touching things and hand washing and sanitizing and oh my gosh, the yeah. coins, like you were saying the, the wooden coins. So yeah. Um, I think I, I'm not sure if it feels like we've gotten used to it or if it's gotten easier to do because everyone understands it or what, but mm -hmm. It feels like a much more fun atmosphere. We were at the market last week, and mm -hmm. um, it it feels it feels less like con constricted mm -hmm. than it did, but still. Yeah, I think that speaks to the anxiety of those early months too. I mean, everyone was so on edge. There was just, you know, new information, new guidance, new death tolls coming out every day. Not that that's different from now. It's just I think. <sighs> sadly, we're all more used to it. And also we've all been isolated from each other so much. Um, even though you do have to stand 10 feet apart, you couldn't eat at the market or drink at the market anymore. You could still see people's eyes <laughs> and yeah. you could still run into friends and, and have a moment. Do the elbow bump. and Yeah. And, you know, in the beginning we were moving people through really quickly and now we've realized we do have enough space to kind of let people linger a little bit. You know, uh, we had volunteers going around and saying, could you please move through quickly so we can let more people in. And we've rarely had to do that um, since the opening, which has been great. So people are able to um, hang out. We still don't have eating or drinking at the market uh, unless unless you really need to because we're not going to kick anybody out for needing to take a drink of something because they're parched or you know we don't want people yeah. to fall over in the heat. We don't want kids yeah. to be upset because they need a snack, you know so but we try to minimize it. And dogs are allowed back too, by the way. I don't know if you know <laughs> totally noticed. oh my yeah. God. that was one of my favorite things. It's really awesome. Yeah, we were super excited about that. We just decided to kind of quietly do it. Um, and we may need to take it away in the, the spring and early summer. That's when our numbers are up really big again, because the leashes, you know, they just, they do kind of make people move in different ways. Yeah, or the puppies make people move in different ways. <laughs> I want to see the puppy. So cute. You know. Um, so as far as I'm almost, hesitant to ask this, but there, nobody's gotten sick at the market. You guys have all been good. I mean, none of the staff or vendors or vendor employees um, have reported getting sick to us in any way from that they think might be linked to the market. Um, our staff has not been sick at all. As far as I know, none of our volunteers have as well. Um, most of our volunteers this year, a lot of them have been repeating. So coming back day after day. So we've gotten to know them and, uh, you know, we believe they would tell us we have a pretty rigorous uh, volunteer orientation, even though it's, you know, 15 or 20 minutes, it still covers a lot. Yeah. So yeah, we're pretty safe and everybody stays masked. We don't tolerate a mask below the nose. We will run right over when we see it that second and and nicely accost people <laughs> kindly because <laughs> a lot of people just don't even realize that they pulled it down to yeah. you know scratch their face uh yeah I yeah, know I've, I've noticed that too and Brett is all Brett is very much more kind than I am 
be like, oh, it's really hard to remember to put that back over your nose. And I'm like, <laughs> fix it. Um, yeah, I always am just like, could you please pull your mask up? You know, <laughs> and I grew up in and around Parkersburg. Um, my parents both grew up in the area um, and a lot of their family lived there. And when I was younger, I split my time a lot between Parkersburg, which is a town of, I don't remember how many people, 30,000, I, I don't know. Um, and my grandma's house, I stayed with my grandma and my peepaw, that's what we called my grandpa, um, a lot of the time. I mean, to the point where in the summer, it was probably a 50-50 split some years. And they live in Davisville, West Virginia, which was maybe 15 minutes outside of Parkersburg, but was like a different world. You know, it was a, a little hollow with right off, not too far off the interstate, um, Route 50 with, I don't know, five houses on the road. Um, or no, excuse me, Murphy Town is the name of it. Davis was where my great grandma lived. But anyway, Murphy Town, unincorporated town of, I don't know how many, you know, real little. Yeah. Yeah. And that's my, my mom's family was from uh, more hill area, you know, hill people. So yeah. And my great grandma, Grammy was alive too, until I was seven or eight, I think. Um, yeah, there were a lot of food differences. Like my, my people had ramps a lot and going into Parkersburg and eating at friends' houses or eating at home. I don't remember ever having ramps. Um, you're lucky you knew about ramps a long time ago before it was trendy. Yeah, I know. Um, West Virginia, the, the food forward trendy place. <laughs> And is it? is it, tell me about that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that it is, no, but, um, but maybe, I mean, I remember always eating well. I know my grandfather, um, people had a small, um, little garden. I believe my mom told me when she was younger that he actually had a, a small farm. And I know that, um, my Grammy and then my great, great grandmother, who was my mother's grandma. Um, they all lived in kind of the same hollow too. And I, I know that they did some farming and some livestock raising. Um, yeah. So it was, you know, a lot of fried potatoes and onions, which I still to this day adore. Um, a lot of game meats that were hunted. You know, I remember my people's brothers and uh, one of my cousins coming every year and they'd gather at the house and then they'd go hunting, you know, for the, the weekend. Um, it's a big deal. Yeah. So. Then they'd bring home the deer and have them hanging from the deck. Yeah. And it's funny that I don't remember, but I know there were dead deer. Like I remember talking about it, but I don't remember the scene. It makes me wonder if I blocked it out. <laughs> Yeah, I, I remember the deer hanging, um, you know, on on the porch or um, from the, the deck mm -hmm. um, after my dad brought it home. And then, like, he would get the full heads and antlers mm -hmm. stuffed and mounted. Yep. He had a yeah, couple was, of those growing up. Yeah, a lot of those in West Virginia. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we have close friends who, um, well, I know a lot of people in West Virginia who still hunt. And, you know, it's just very much part of the culture. It's Appalachia, yeah. really. Yeah. And venison is good. It's a nice lean meat. Mm -hmm. You actually have to add fat to it. If you mm -hmm. want. Uh, my dad actually uh, did most of the cooking um, when they were together. And they're both good cooks. They're just very different. You know, my dad... Um, enjoys looking up, always did enjoy looking up a recipe and making it. That's how he started making his uh, excellent clam chowder, which I can no longer eat because I have a shellfish allergy now, which oh, is, no. I know mid thirties really killed me with those allergies cropping up. Um, I'm, I'm used to it now, but boy, I miss scallops, something awful. And, um, you know, he will, he enjoys looking up recipes and trying new things. And so, 
you know, when I was little, I didn't eat this stuff, but <laughs> as I got older, I loved it. Um, yeah. and my mom was always a much more simple cook who loved to cook, but as a single mother with, you know, she had both my brother and I nearly full time and working full time who has time. So she yeah. didn't get the opportunity to cook a lot, but she loved it. A pork roast and mashed potatoes is like a fond memory of something that she made. Um, cool. Very comforting, you know. So, so yeah, you had a lot of comfort food, a lot of like rich foods, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, and then, and then you went to college and you're an athlete. Yeah. So that actually started in high school. Um, I started track in high school and uh, ran a lot and would do a workout or two sometimes, yeah, fairly regularly before school, which started at like seven or seven thirty. It was, it was early. Um, and at that point, an early morning person, I've always been a fairly early morning person. Yeah. Even in college, I woke up fairly early compared to roommates. Um, <laughs> And yeah, so I, I started eating healthier then. Plus I was old enough to cook on my own a little bit. And so, and mom had always, my mom had always done things like sneak tofu into my scrambled eggs for extra protein, you know, a lean protein. And, um, you know, she was very health conscious and my she dad told too. about it. This she told me later, but I never knew. Okay. Yeah. Well, then it's, it's kind of like those, do you remember those um, cinnamon buns? They were, what do they call them? So there was some kind of cinnamon bun that they started uh, serving to kids in schools and they were fortified with all kinds of vitamins. Oh, I've seen yeah. those. My kids get those sometimes. Yeah. And you have generations of kids that are eating cinnamon rolls, thinking it's a nutritious breakfast because that's what the U.S. government had created to feed the kids in the schools. So they knew they'd eat something sweet, but also get their vitamins. And so that's created this whole eating dysfunction. Yeah. Yeah, it really <laughs> like did. If you're eating just whatever it was and not knowing that there's that additional tofu in there that could, you know, you need, you need to know. Yeah. I appreciate that we always had fresh vegetables or frozen vegetables. Uh, I don't recall eating vegetables out of a can much. And I have a cousin who only ate vegetables out of a can. That's all she knew. Um, and she hated vegetables until she started having fresh ones cooked, you know, from fresh. And um, so that was pretty shocking to me that eating stuff out of a can, but I'm yeah. also lucky that, you know, with a mom working full time and trying to have a social life, um, she was a cashier in a grocery store uh, most of her working life. And so bringing home food, grocery shopping was pretty easy. So there was always yeah. fruit, you know, there was, and it was just pretty much always stocked because she could easily grab something on her way out. Every day. Yeah. That's right. Really handy. Yeah. It was really handy. So we ate really well, in my opinion. Um, and my dad always was fairly health conscious too. Lots of chicken, lean, lean meats, things like that. Um, but yeah. Yeah. yeah I like you had a really, you know, positive food up in, in your food, food world in your life. Um, yeah. And it would be really easy to take that for granted. Mm -hmm. I totally um, did. Yeah. But you don't seem to now. So well, having my cousin, she lived with us for about a year ish. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, she was the one that didn't like vegetables and she was vegetarian. And we, we really struggled with like how to feed her. And, and she was an older teenager when she moved in. So wow. it's not like we had to do everything for her, but you know, we had little kids. I was transitioning from being a stay-at-home mom to working part-time. And so I was used to cooking all the time. And um, I just, I so distinctly remember her saying, you know, I didn't like vegetables because they were all mushy. And I'm like, yeah, some canned vegetables all the time, you know, can be mushy. Yeah. I think of canned green beans and it just, I don't know. Some people love them. Yeah. I can't, I can't do it. Yeah, no, me neither. 
but you don't like green beans anyway, yeah. right? Well, I don't. I don't. But <laughs> that was a bad example, but <laughs> right. But canned green beans are even worse than yeah. They're they're the lowest low of green beans, <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> so um how did you how did you get an interest in the the local food scene? Um, it really started when I had kids. Um, when I had our son Jack in 2008, um, I became an accidental stay-at-home mom and kind of threw myself into food. And Jack taught me a lot because he would wake up and be instantly grumpy and cranky and we tried all kinds of things and um, a doctor mentioned maybe he needs more protein you know just just try just try the diet a little bit just try changing it around mm -hmm. and I made hard-boiled eggs one day um, and the next morning peeled one for him and within seconds he was a smiley happy kid <laughs> so wow. um, for years the kid ate one, two, three hard-boiled eggs a day. Um, and that was, you know, I'd always tried to buy the best quality food that we could afford. We couldn't afford much then, but the eggs were the thing that really got me on, you know, these need to be the most nutritionally, nutritionally dense eggs that we can get. And so that's, that kind of started leading me to farms and down a rabbit hole of local foods. Where can I get fresh eggs? I started going over to the farmer's market um, on Saturday mornings in East Liberty, the indoor one by the Home Depot. And um, you had to get there early to get eggs or they would sell out. And yeah. luckily I'm a morning person. Um, <laughs> yeah, but they, open from, they open at 5 a.m. until noon, that's it. I know, I know, it's early. And then at some point, I don't know, I've always kind of flirted with vegetarianism and we, I, I never really liked cooking with meat. So we ate a predominantly vegetarian diet. Uh, and I have since switched to eating, incorporating meat a little more. It's still not constant uh, or with every meal or even every day, but we definitely do eat meat more. And I think it's largely because I now have, I mean, for me, it's really easy helping run a farmer's market, <laughs> but having access to farms and farmers and understanding how they raise their animals does make me feel better about eating it. And I have the luxury of being able to afford um, to be picky with my food, um, because I know that, you know, farmer's market meat directly from a farmer is definitely priced differently than, um, meat from Giant Eagle or local yeah. grocery store. But it's, it, it's, it makes a difference in its nutrition content too. Like you were saying with the eggs, that's a yeah. really great point because, when, when you feed, can you talk about that, the, the different nutrient values of different chicken eggs? You know, I've learned everything I know from Shelly Oswald of Old Time Farm about eggs. Okay. Um, but I know that when we crack open one of her eggs, the yolk is almost orange yep. and it tastes different too. And not bad. It tastes like delicious. And I will admit that I let it kind of go in one ear and out the other because I, I just, I don't, I'm not a person that needs to know everything about everything. I just need enough to help me make a good choice. And then yeah. if I retain it, great. If not, that's okay. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, the food, food math fatigue is real. It is. <laughs> it really is. All the calculations of, of what you eat, but um, as I understand it, the, the way that a chicken, when, when the chicken eats whatever it eats, whether it eats corn or it eats grass, that informs the nutrients in the egg. Right. So when chickens eat grass and other, you know, plants and, and bugs, like they're supposed to, 
that is translated into what an egg is meant to be. And it's got all of the nutrients that we think eggs should have. But when chickens are fed just corn or some other sort of like when they're confined and they have this confined diet and they're not allowed to free range, um, I guess you could have not allowed to free range chickens eating good feed but most of the time it's just something to bulk them up um, and to to keep them alive to keep them laying eggs real bland diet for the chickens translates into a really bland nutrient profile egg so yeah it doesn't really do our bodies any good to eat those mm-hmm. yeah i remember talking to shelly once and i was asking her about the eggs it was probably the first time she came to the market and I, I, I was just talking to her about her eggs and she was telling me all about the chickens and how she raises them and that she does need to supplement their diets with feed. Um, and she couldn't find feed that she liked. So she started growing her own and making her own oh, wow. for her chickens. And I was, I was so impressed with that. I was like, she is really, really committed to making sure her food is just incredible and um yeah so she wants to make sure her food is right like the way food's supposed to be and that's one Mm -hmm. of the things I really appreciate about her for sure yeah she's awesome and the eggs are awesome too the eggs are awesome I know they are and so you were asking me about how I got into the food scene and I Mm -hmm. should add that um I actually also heard about the farm to table conference that happens downtown at the uh, convention center here in Pittsburgh. And I, it was $25 to go who doesn't need a break from their nursing baby. Uh, so, so I remember telling my husband, like, I'm going to go to this. It's on a Saturday. It's, it was on a Friday and a Saturday, I think. So I took uh, my son on the Friday, and then I went back on Saturday without him. And it was so great. I met so many people. And I went, I think every year, almost every year, uh, and then took this job. And so then I kept going every year. Yeah. But that was really incredible too, because I don't think I'd ever thought about the number of uh, farms and producers in the area and what else I could be getting from locally. Yeah, that that farm to table conference has really opened people's eyes. I'm really grateful for it. But yeah, it's when you see all of those different businesses and you sort of you start putting together all the things that are available locally, like yeah, you can have a year-round farmers market. You can have um the indoor, outdoor, you know, it doesn't have to be, there's not real a lot of um there's not a lot of products that are missing from I mean yes coffee oranges Mm -hmm. chocolate okay I've I've already mourned that fact that we'll never be able to grow those things here in Pittsburgh but you know everything else is there it's amazing how the first couple of years of the market invariably there was always one or two people a year who would storm off angry because we didn't sell bananas or something like that and wow yeah, it would happen at least once a year. Um, you know, someone also stormed off once very angry yelling at us because we had music and music had no place in a farmer's market. Uh, and that's when I adopted the saying, our market isn't for everyone. And <laughs> we welcome everyone, but we understand it's not for everyone, such as people who don't like music and who insist on having bananas at their farmer's market. That's great. Yeah. Well, you know, I, the, you mentioned the market, the indoor market over in East Liberty, the farmer's market cooperative of East Liberty, uh, which has been around since 1942. I did my thesis, my food studies thesis on that. Wow. Yeah. Um, And I remember the first time going in there, I was just like, it's not, they have, they had bananas and avocados and oranges. And I'm like, what is happening? But then they also had the local eggs and the meat and all the vegetables and uh what i realized is that they have just they've been around since 1942 that's a long time and they have kept their market going by fulfilling their customers needs mm-hmm. so they had one or two customers that were like you know what if i could just get a lime and a banana while i'm here i wouldn't have to go to the other store for a couple things that mm-hmm. would be 
great. And so they just started picking them up for their for certain customers. And then that took off. So um, I, I can appreciate that. But yeah, it's not, um, you can't always accommodate to everybody. So yeah, and that market went year round every still does every week. And you know, in the winter, there's not a lot of fruits or vegetables um, at our market. We hear constantly, like, why don't you have more? And it's a wonderful opportunity to um, help build awareness of what can be grown here. So those, those opportunities for conversation are always great. But yeah, I think the other thing is if you can sell avocados and limes right next to your tomatoes and cilantro and onion, then you might sell more of those because then people say, oh, I can make guacamole out of this. You know, it, it, it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I'm mm -hmm. thinking about guacamole too. I just <laughs> made guacamole <laughs> yesterday and then I ate the whole thing myself. I didn't, no wow. one in the house got more any, actually it was good. That does sound delicious. Yeah. I'm, I'm uh, getting hungry here. Um, so you're, kids have had an influence on the way that you eat now you're talking about your your son your daughter um was is it a, a bad influence good influence? I, I mean kids are kids and the american diet is the american diet and you can't keep them away from uh mac and cheese and chicken nuggets and whatever hot dogs you know and i wouldn't Especially want to. when you're not in the middle of nowhere west virginia Right. And I wouldn't want to, uh, but it, it's a challenge to keep it reasonable to, <laughs> to a reasonable amount when school lunches and after school events and, um, you know, th those foods are inexpensive, easy, you can feed a crowd. And so I remember, I remember one year it was like the last week of school. And I think we were out at events or, you know, school related things almost every night that week. And there was pizza every single one. <laughs> and even my husband who his favorite food is pizza, didn't want pizza for a couple of weeks. I Wait, mean, was, was that like December, 2019? No, it was toward the end of the school year. So it was oh, in okay. May or June. Cause I remember December, 2019, all of the holiday parties or events that I went to throughout that month, it was pizza everything was pizza like everybody you know, just, like literally phoned in an order for pizza <laughs> I remember that too there were three different <laughs> holiday parties I went to and there were other foods too but there was a lot of pizza yeah um I guess because it's it's easy and filling and yeah yeah um yeah so I mean it's taste change as you get older so right now one of my kids is in a phase of not loving most vegetables or fruits, but you know, we identify the ones that he does like and we keep them on hand all the time. And you know, the the debate is there's it's heavy with people very vehement on either side about do you force your kids to eat something? Do you not? Do you just put it on the plate? Um, and our kids are old enough, we we do a two-bite rule, you know, and they can be tiny bites, but you at least have to taste it. Um, and I'm not going to make them taste something I know they're going, not going to like, like one of my kids really likes a military plate, you know, everything's separated. So I brought home eggplant Parmesan the other night from um, Maria Moranti up the street in Bloomfield. And that sounds good. It's amazing, but I'm not going to make him eat that. I know he's not going to like it. And that's, I offered it. I said, would you eggplant and tomato and cheese all in one bite? Oh, no. Right, right. Yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot of flavor. It's a lot to ask. It's a lot of flavor. Um, but I also won't cook two meals. I just won't. I will pull out plain pasta. The kids both like their pasta plain. I used to like mine plain as a kid. I get it. Now I like it with all the things on it, you know. Um, Not even butter? Uh, they'll have butter and salt on the pasta, which is delicious. I mean, I, yeah, it is. I, I've done that. Yeah. And then another one of my kids will eat, I bought a bunch of cilantro the other day and she ate the whole thing in one sitting like a rabbit. You know, she just, wow. She just will eat vegetables and fruits and will make fun things and will dip strawberries in chocolate and make them for the family. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. 
Uh, 10. That's 10. cool. Yeah, she's very interested in cooking right now. She's been making, we got her the things to make bubble tea for Christmas. So there's a lot of bubble tea. Wait, are you, oh no, it's just tapioca. And yeah. I heard about this thing where you can make liquid into bubbles, like not, mm -hmm. not air bubbles, but solid mm -hmm. bubbles. What is that called? Oh, I'm going to have to look that up. Grandma Google will know. Oh, it was, yeah. One of my uh, interns introduced me to the term. It's spherification, maybe? It's a big word. She squeaked. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's some sort of chemical, not, not chemical, bad chemical, but chemistry that yeah. happens when you put two things together and it makes these, yeah, I'm going to have to, <laughs> they did like red wine. They made red wine into these little, uh, balls That's that so held cool. together. Yeah. Fascinating. We'll, we'll talk about that another time. Once really I have neat. more information, I'll have to get that. And then that could be a show. Mm-hmm. We'll yeah, that would be everything. super fun. I would be all into making bubbles out of all kinds of things. Yep. All right, cool. You're on. I'm you're, in. You're into it, yeah. 100% in. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, is is there anything else that you would like to tell, tell us about what influenced your personal food evolution? Mm, you know, I've always just taken things from a lot of people. Um, I can't say I spent a lot of time with either of my parents in the kitchen learning to cook. So I don't, I don't feel like I really knew, I know I didn't know how to cook when I left home. Um, but I landed an internship at the State Museum in Harrisburg right after they demolished the dorms for the, in, the intern housing. And so the bosses of the interns all had to find housing for them. And I got placed with a woman named Ann Yellett who had these two townhouses side by side. And I, as a 19 year old, got a whole townhouse to myself with maid service. And oh she paid God. for my phone bill and all the furniture was antique. Her, her uncle had been in charge of getting the stolen Jewish art and artifacts um, back from Hitler's stores to the folks. And there were many things that never found homes. She had Hitler's lions sitting there. I slept in- In the I house that you stayed in. What? In the house you stayed in. Yeah, the, the whole house was filled with artifacts and her grandfather had been Thomas, some, I don't know. He invented Masonite, which was really interesting because my dad, worked as a traveling salesman for Mace Knight when I was a kid. And so that was neat. Oh, wow. Um, but anyway, she would hand me a cookbook or she would pick out a recipe and either she would go out and get all the stuff or she'd hand me the keys to her car and I would go out and get all the stuff and I would cook it. And it was phenomenal. It was, it was great because I learned how to cook well using a recipe. <laughs> And that's hard for someone with ADHD to learn how to follow direction. She was very patient and she's like, what are you forgetting? You know, and it was, it, it was a wonderful experience that three months. So she walked you through learning to cook. Yeah. I mean, she would sit there with her dog, Flurry, a King Charles Spaniel on her lap. And she'd, you know, be reading a little bit and kind of look over and monitor what I was doing. No, 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 no. You know, and I'd, ask questions. You know, the first couple of times I was very nervous because I barely knew this woman. And here I am straight out of West Virginia, plunk down in this beautiful historic home. Yeah. Surrounded by these incredible antiques. It was such a surreal experience. But... So was it her house that you lived in? Yeah, it was side by side, um, small townhouses. They had been the servants quarters for a much larger, grander, downtown Harrisburg house and they were connected in the back by a um she called it the solarium you know like a sunroom that was glassed in nice. and little doors off the kitchen so we would sit out there in the solarium every day and talk after I got home from work and it was neat and then was it part of the arrangement that you would do the cooking no happen no she was just a really cool person you know, she would make, I remember she had some people for lunch and whenever she had people over, she would invite me. I spent tons of time with her. I didn't, you know, sit in my 
little house and just hide like I was constantly with her and she'd made this grape and steak salad once for dinner and I said I've never eaten fruit and meat together and so she went on a a mission of the next time we had a pork and tomato and apricot dish I'd never had anything like that before um and yeah so she she was just like you what do you mean you don't know how to cook I I can boil water I mean I can do all the basic things I could probably make eggs but I've never had to um that's so so it was really neat it was such a great experience so what was your favorite thing that you learned to cook through that method oh my gosh um she she's the first person that ever made me think that I could actually bake bread so I got to bake rolls actually it was rolls with her but it's still bread um and really odd salads I still love salads with you know cheeses that maybe you don't well now you do but at the time it there weren't a lot of these kinds of restaurants that had amazing food combinations in them and i I don't know if people just weren't as adventurous or maybe some of these ingredients just weren't easily available. Um, but she would find them and, um, she would take me to Amish stores a lot to get certain ingredients for things and Amish stores. Yeah. There are a lot of, um, Harrisburg Amish around that area. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I, I guess I didn't put Amish stores together. Mm Mm-hmm. So you think Amish farms and then they have someone else, but it's, I wonder how they get their stuff to their stores. Is it at their home? Uh, little towns and things. I remember one in particular, I can't remember where it was. This is, you know, what is that? 23 years ago. Um, I just remember driving into this tiny town and there being like a what I thought was like a feed store, like a farm supply store, but it actually also had, um, you know, groceries, milk, eggs, things like that. Cheese. Oh, the cheese. Oh yeah. The cheese. Oh, the cheese. Well, that's really awesome and interesting. And I think that's probably a, a big pivotal part, part of your uh, food evolution. Definitely. That's why I had to add it in. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking with me. It's been amazing. And I can't believe an hour has just flown by. That was really fast. (laughs) It really was. This is fun. Thanks for having me. Not a problem. It was really great. Um, I really appreciate it. And I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. With Bowl and Spoon is hosted, produced, and mixed by me, Shelley Danko Day. Original theme song was written and performed by Paul Labrise in French. Special thanks goes out to my guest, Christina Howell, for taking the time to talk with me. And also, I want to give a special shout out to my new marketing guy, Dom, who's helping me get my website and social media together so you and I can communicate better. You can listen to With Bowl and Spoon at Anchor, Spotify, Apple, anywhere you get your podcasts, I think. Follow us and send us questions or messages on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at With Bowl and Spoon. And like I said, we've got a website coming soon, so that will be an option soon. Uh, Thanks for listening, and have a great day.